Well, it's kind of hard to believe uh, that we are already at the end of our summer series in the Psalms. I'm not going to say that again. I'm sure you'll take it in. Uh, I'm super excited about this um, because next week we get to start our series in Genesis. I'm also a little bummed. The Psalms have been fun. And I, I hope for you, as you've been hearing different genres of Psalms over the summer, that it's, it's helped give you and I a little bit uh, more of a voice for the different emotions that we feel as people and as Christians. Um, we've explored uh, a hymn of praise, a, a, a wisdom psalm, psalm of confidence. Last week we looked at a lament psalm, and this week we're going to look at Psalm 32, which is known as a penitential psalm. Basically, one where David is saying, I'm sorry, I screwed up. Um, It's a psalm of confession and sorrow over sin. There's just one little detail I want to point out with this particular penitential psalm, and it's in the beginning. If you look at your Bible um, in the translation, there should be something that says like a psalm of David, and that tells you David probably wrote it, and then it might also say a maskil. And uh, in Hebrew, that word maskil uh, tends to mean like, a, some, like an instruction. Like, I'm about ready to, to take you to school. And normally you see that word maskil in front of uh, wisdom psalm. So like Psalm 1 is a wisdom psalm. Blessed is the man who uh, you know, doesn't take the counsel of the wicked or nor sit in the seat of scoffers, that kind of thing. It's, uh, usually you see that maskil in front of those types of psalms. Um, so as we look at this particular penitential psalm, we're going to be asking ourselves in the back of our mind, what is it that David is trying to teach us here? Well, what do we know about David? First of all, he's known all throughout Scripture in the Hebrew text and the New Testament as being a man after God's own heart. He is Israel's greatest king. Whenever they talk about kings after David, it's always ranking them compared to David. Uh, He was a shepherd. He was a musician and a psalmist. He was a warrior. And notoriously, David was a sinner. 2 Samuel chapter 11 tells us the story of David and Bathsheba. And if you're familiar with that story, let's see, here are the, here are the cliff notes. David, uh, his armies go off to war. He sleeps with Bathsheba, who's married. And then he tries to cover it all up by having her husband killed. That is the cliff notes, kind of the the clean version. That's the Bible trivia version. But I want us to consider just for a moment how deep David's sin really goes in that that encounter. Now normally, the kings in that day would go off to war with their people. But David, on this particular time, stays back home while his men he sends out to go die for his kingdom, so that his kingdom could get advanced. So that's already a knock against David. And while his men are out fighting his battle, David takes a stroll up on his mansion, and he plays a peeping Tom. Basically, he sees this woman Bathsheba bathing across the way. And, you know, normally, like, the right thing to do would be like, oh, there's a naked lady, you know, so you, you, you turn your eyes and go away. But David seems to, like, just keep on looking, and then he, you know, he gets more and more lustful, and eventually he sends his envoy over there to go bring this woman to his house. Now, we're prone to lead this, read this kind of matter-of-factly, because Hebrew writing is just so terse and to the point, so it says, like, David saw Bathsheba, thought she was beautiful, sent his people over, brought her back, they slept together. Um, and it, what it makes it sound like is, you know, it's kind of consensual. But what you have to remember is that in those days, like, women didn't really get much of a voice, and you certainly didn't question the king. 
And so what's implied in the text, uh, when, you, when you know that cultural background, is that David was abusing his power. And today you might consider that rape or, even, or, or date rape at least. But, uh, so David is abusing his power and sleeps with this married woman. So, he finds out, I don't know how much later, however long it takes, that she's pregnant. His, her husband's been off to war. This is David's child. And so he calls her husband Uriah back. And under the muse that he just wants uh, Uriah to tell him how the battle's going. How goes the battle, Uriah? Oh, okay, that's interesting. Why don't you go home with your wife tonight and then hit back to the battlefield? And Uriah's like, you're kidding me. Like, I am not going to go home in my warm bed with the comfort of my wife when my brothers are out fighting. So he sleeps that night on David's, outside of his doorstep. So David says, okay, plan B. I'm going to get this guy drunk and then he'll go sleep with his wife and he'll think the baby's his. Well, Uriah doesn't fall for that one either. So he goes back to the battle. David calls Joab, his general, and says, Joab, i got a problem. I need you to take care of Uriah. I need you to make it look like an accident. So here's what I want you to do. Put him on the front lines. You guys go up to the wall of the city you're trying to siege and then pull back and he'll get wasted. That's exactly what happens. David schemes this whole murder of Uriah. But you know, there's more to the story. As you read 2 Samuel 11, you learn that multiple soldiers were, were killed in that little evolution. And so really, by trying, uh, David trying to get out of this one mistake and having Uriah killed, he also killed a bunch of his other soldiers that didn't have to die that day. Because anytime you go up to a wall and then you, with, and then you retreat and you expose your, your backside, you're going to get arrows and spears and things like that. So because of David's decision, multiple people were killed. The nature of David's sin is so insidious that we can't even really conceive of the total effect that it had. I mean, first of all, it's a bad example, right, to his country, to his family. His sons who had come after him had horrible track records with women. Uh, they would all struggle with sexual infidelity and making really brutal decisions against other people. And so David, this God, man after God's own heart, is a rapist, adulterer, liar, and responsible for the murder of more than one man. Now, when David finally confesses the blackness that is in his heart, that's what we believe Psalm 51 comes out of. God, I've sinned against you. Oh, make me clean inside. Wash me clean with hyssop, right? And don't take your Holy Spirit from me. And it's interesting that in Psalm 51, which is this, this gush of, uh, of confession and longing for God to restore him, here's 51 verses 11 and 12. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with the willing spirit. And this is what I want you to pay attention to. Then I will teach transgressors your ways... And sinners will be converted to you. Restore me, God. Don't take your spirit from me. And I'm going to turn this thing around and I'm going to tell other people about your love and your forgiveness. So where does Psalm 32 fit into all of this? Many scholars view Psalm 32 as David's musing as a much older man. And it's almost as if Psalm 32 is David living up to his word that he's telling transgressors like you and me about God's love. He wants us to know the seriousness 
of sin and the seriousness also of grace. So let's see what David has to teach us in Psalm 32. Would you please stand as I read this? How blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the one to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality, my life force was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. But I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I did not cover. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with songs of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Do not be as the horse or as the mule which have no understanding, whose trappings include bit and bridle to hold them in check. Otherwise they will not come near to you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, loving kindness shall surround him. So be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones, and shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. Father, thank you for this word, this good news. Thank you that even a person like David, who in many ways is so admirable, is also so fallen. And thank you that you still love and receive and even use fallen people, God. Thank you for the hope that that gives us. And I pray that you would would help us to receive your grace and your forgiveness, Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Well, last week, if you weren't here, we, we looked at Psalm 13, which is a lament psalm. And, and lament psalms are wonderful for giving voice to some of the sorrows that we experience in life. So a lament psalm deals with circumstances that happen to us. Like you didn't cause these things, like a loss of a job or loss of a loved one or, or just expectations that aren't met. That, those are things that we lament over. And lament psalms are great uh, for carrying us through those times. But a penitential psalm, like Psalm 32, deals with circumstances that we bring upon ourselves through our sin. So a lament psalm deals with the question, God, where are you in the midst of this crisis? Whereas a penitential psalm deals with the question, God, where am I in the midst of this crisis? In other words, God, where do I stand with you in light of my sin? God... Where do I stand with you? That's got to be one of those foundational questions that whether you actually say those words or not, it kind of can dominate our mental state, our emotional state. How, how do I really measure up, God? What do you really think about me? I mean, I know you love all them, but I know me. 
In some ways, you see, coming to church and hearing the good news of, of, of grace and forgiveness week in and week out, uh, while I'll never stop preaching those things because they're in the Bible, it, it can kind of have a, uh, a numbing effect. And what I mean is, I think that we think we understand forgiveness. I got that. He says it every week. Uh, But I've yet to meet a person, including myself, who does not struggle in some way with the idea of forgiveness. See, on the one hand, we are masters as human beings of deluding ourselves into thinking that we're doing just fine. Uh, We're masters at rationalizing behavior, and the more we convince ourselves that we are in control of our lives and our own little gods, the more numb we can grow to the conviction uh, of our sin before God. On the other hand, we have a very hard time really accepting forgiveness. Most of us think forgiveness is a great idea for other people, right? Uh, but not for us. For some reason, we, we have a really hard time accepting it ourselves. Uh, and the more we get in touch, I think, with the deep recesses of who we are, like you start following Christ a while, and as wonderful as it is, it also kind of brings up the junk in your life. I, I swear, every year that I follow Jesus more, uh, I realize how much more fallen than I am. God, where do I stand with you? Notice that both these views, both these views, that the view of, I don't really think I need forgiveness, and the view of, I don't really think I can receive forgiveness... They're both very (laughs) self-centered. They're both about me, and they're both about you, and really, kind of pride is at the bedrock of both of them. And I think that's why Psalm 32 can be so helpful for us. Because Psalm 32 gives us the proper perspective. It won't allow us to focus on ourselves first. Instead, it focuses on us in relationship to God. The Hebrew text here in Psalm 32 uses three words to describe sin. The first is transgression. It literally means to turn away from, and in this context it means to turn away from God, to turn your back on Him, to rebel against Him. Uh, Let's just face it, let's just be honest here for a minute. We are usually aware of our sin because it affects us negatively. We feel bad about it. Or our sin affects a relationship that we are in. And when that person is ticked off at us, it has negative ramifications on my smooth sailing life. And so a a lot of times our sin uh, is really a pain in our butts. (laughs) Um, Which of course is very self-centered. I just want to be honest. At least that's where I'm at. Then let me speak for you. But Psalm 32, and I think most of the rest of scripture, reminds us that first and foremost, sin is a transgression or a rebellion against God. It's wrong, not because you feel bad about it, but because it's disobedient to God, who like created us and, you know, it's his world and everything. Just forget that. I need this reminder from Psalm 32. I might be a pastor, but I live in the same world you do. And I know that when we walk out those doors, right, we live in a world that subtly and not so subtly tells me I'm my own God. I can control my life. That as long as I don't hurt anyone else, whatever feels good, do it. And sometimes even if I do hurt someone else, if I can get away with it, whatever feels good, do it. I need a steady diet of Psalm 32 reminding me, hey, you're not in charge. 
Uh, that I don't get to define what sin is, and neither does the government, and neither does the latest film or the latest cultural trend. Like, God gets to decide those things. The second word in the text uh, is usually translated in English, sin. Uh, and, and it means falling short. I don't know if you've heard this maybe in youth group or something. that uh, Well, sin is like you're shooting an arrow at a target and you miss the bullseye. That's close. Actually, this Hebrew word means falling short. So like your arrow doesn't even get to the, to the target, okay? And, and that's a better example for me because, again, kind of our culture is, especially in Bellingham and kind of, well, United States probably, we just like everyone to feel okay. And then it used to be like when I was a kid, you either got, you either won or you lost in sports or maybe track or swimming or something, you got first, second, and third. But it seems like more and more nowadays you get like 22nd place, participation ribbon, and some of that's okay, right? But like, there's this sense that, you know, you screwed up, but you were really close to doing the right thing, like you meant to do the right thing, and so you should pat yourself on the back. And, and I think what's healthy is that we remember, you know, uh, I'm, I'm not even hitting the target when, when I'm sinning. Like, and and that's, that's reality. It, it's important for us to live in, in the truth of reality. I, I need that image. If this word sin means not even hitting the target, it, that implies what? That there's a target to hit in the first place. Um, so there are things in scripture like the Ten Commandments, for example. Uh, there's a vision for the kind of life that God created us to live in the Sermon on the Mount. So if you ever wonder, like, yeah, I, I just can't think of any sins that I've done this week. I just encourage you, read the Sermon on the Mount to see if you're doing that stuff. Because they'll, they'll probably bring something up. And if you don't want to do all that, just consider uh, the, the great commandment. You know, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. And love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. Guilty. When we don't do those things, we don't even hit the target. Now, notice that both these words, transgressions and sins, have to do with God. Transgression is rebellion against God. Sin is missing the target of the life that God intended for us. It's all about God. And just so you don't feel left out in our nice little self-centered world, the third word is called iniquity, and that's about you and it's about me. I think that if you have the NIV, it just repeats the word sin again, but it's actually a different Hebrew word, and it, it means iniquity. And here's what it means. Twisted or corrupt. It has to do with the state of my heart and my mind. We are twisted on the inside, and, and a lot of times that's where, that's where our sin comes out of, is this twisted perspective we have. When we think twisted thoughts and corrupt thoughts, transgressions and sins result. And honestly, when we live that kind of life, don't we feel kind of twisted and wrong? Okay, now I know all this is kind of heavy. Oh, the three Hebrew words for sin. and uh, let, Let's not forget that the first word in this psalm is blessed. Blessed, and that means there's got to be gospel in this Psalm 32 somewhere, and we're going to find it. Blessed is the one, right, whose transgression has been forgiven. And I love that word, because in Hebrew, it's not just... Forgiven, that's kind of a general term. What it means is literally lifted up and lifted off. So 
You can imagine maybe yourself on your face before God uh, because of your transgression, your rebellion against Him. And he, that, that lifting up connotes the idea that He's lifting up your status. That you're no longer like this groveling person. That He's lifting you up. He's saying, child, stand before me. And it's a lifting off of that horrible weight of guilt and shame. Uh, any of you seen the wonderful film from the 86, I think, The Mission? Uh, De Niro, right? It, wonderful film. He's a Portuguese soldier who comes into uh, South America and has done horrible things, um, uh, decimated native people groups, and is trying to take over these things. And he, he has a change of heart. And so Jeremy Irons' character is a priest and takes uh, De Niro's character uh, up this muddy thing with the rope and, uh, to this village where he's going to repent of his sins before the, this tribe of people. And he's got all of his old way of life, his armor and his sword and dagger and pistol, all that stuff in this, this bag. It reminds me of the bag that uh, 3PO gets put in in, in uh, Return of the Jedi when he's all in pieces. Okay, so it's like that. And he's, uh, come on now, and he's climbing up the rope, and he's slipping and climbing up. And he's just, when the people, the natives, who he's killed many of their people, receive him and forgive him, he just loses it. And then Jeremy Irons takes a machete and cuts that load off of him, and it falls down the cliff. And you can just see the relief that he's been forgiven, it's been lifted off. Friends, that's the good news of Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression has been lifted off, has been forgiven. Blessed is the one whose sin is covered. Not covered up like a scandal, but covered. And what this means to a Jewish person uh, who's reading Psalm 32 in context is on Yom Kippur, the high day, the day of atonement of the Jewish calendar, the high priest would go in and sacrifice an animal and sprinkle the blood on the cover, which is also called the mercy seat of the ark. And that atonement would wash over all the people of God for all those sins that their pigeons didn't count up for all throughout the year and all the things that they forgot to ask for. And so it's that connotation, the blood over the covering. You are are covered. Blessed is the one whose iniquity, that twistedness in us, is not counted against you. See, there is great hope, and David experienced that hope. He called out for it in Psalm 51, right after that sin with Bathsheba and against Uriah and all those people. And then he lived a life of ruminating on it. And it's like, as an older person, he's writing Psalm 32 to us. He wants to tell us all about it. Psalm 32 is David the evangelist now. He's saying, hey, I've been there. I've done unspeakable things. I was so ashamed, I couldn't even bring myself to face it. And the psalm continues. David says, When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away. He uses this hyperbole, groaning all day long. His vitality, his life just felt dried up like one of those parched summers in, in, um, in Israel. In psychology, you might say, David is experiencing psychosomatic symptoms. You know, where, where, where your mental state, where your emotional state plays out physically. And maybe you've experienced something like that before when you've been really stressed out and you get sick. That's happened to me. When there's some sin or something gnawing on you, you can get an ulcer, you can get headaches, you can get anxious, all of these things. David is saying, I've been there. 
And he describes the feeling of the day and night of having the Lord's hand heavy upon him. It happens in at least two ways. One of the ways that God, in his grace, convicts us is through the Holy Spirit. John 16 talks about one of the Spirit's ministries is to convict the world of sin. It's that little, hey, you're going down the wrong path here. Hey, what you said to that person isn't very loving. You know, that's the Spirit's ministry of conviction. The Spirit nudges us. And when we ignore the Spirit long enough, God has other ways to bring us to the light so we can be healed. Sometimes um, we get caught. We get caught in whatever thing it is we're trying to hide. Sometimes we get sick or anxious. Sometimes we just feel that heavy hand of God upon us. It's uncomfortable. And what we fail to realize is that we must continually die to that old self in order to receive that new life that God intends for us. C.S. Lewis described it as going to the dentist. Like he describes it when he was a kid and he would get a toothache. He would hide it from his mom. He knew that the dentist would fix him up. But he also knew if you went into the dentist to get that one tooth fixed, then the dentist would say, oh, let me look at the rest of your teeth. And he would poke and prod with that explorer thing. And who knows how they did it back in the 50s and stuff. But uh, yeah, it probably wasn't very comfortable. And that's what he was afraid of. He wasn't afraid of getting that one tooth fixed, that one sin in your life fixed or exposed. It's all the other crap that God wants to mess with us with, right? Because he's not satisfied in just making us feel better about ourselves. He wants to make us more like Jesus. That means thousands of deaths to our old self and thousands of rebirths to a new kind of life. God's healing isn't always pleasant, but that result is new life. So David is trying to teach us something through his experience. I don't know how long he kept the sin inside. We know that he didn't really come clean until uh, Nathan the prophet confronted him. And that one of the results of this uh, confrontation was the death of his child. So we know it took at least nine months because the baby was born. So David had all... Can you imagine carrying adultery, um, uh, siring an illegitimate child, uh, murdering someone, plus some collateral damage murders just on the side. All of that, carrying all of that for that long. No wonder he felt like his life was wasting away. As soon as David confronted, uh, is confronted with the horror of his denial, he confessed to God, and this is what he writes, I acknowledged my sin to you, and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And then it's like he's still so taken with it, he stops speaking to an audience, and he says, and you forgave my, my transgressions. David's words sing of encouragement for you and I to come clean while we still can. He says, you know, confess while you're still able. And he recognizes that we live in a time of grace. But there is going to be a time when Jesus reappears, whether it's in five minutes or five years or five thousand years. I don't know. You don't either. But there'll be a time when when Jesus comes and he's going to judge. And he's going to say, all of you who have trusted me and are found in Christ, you're judged to new life. And those who haven't, the scriptures tell us, are going to be convicted by him, by Jesus, the judge and the jury. Now, David isn't calling for some kind of deathbed confession here. 
Like he's not saying, hey, listen, it's so much better off once you just get this off your chest. So if you just say the words, God's going to forgive you. Uh, In fact, we have a a funny little cartoon that Joe's going to put up there. This might be a little bit sacrilegious, but I'm in love with these coffee for Jesus or coffee with Jesus things. So here we have Carl. He says, I need to confess some of the awful things I've done, Jesus. My heart is weighed down with guilt. Forgive me. And Jesus, he's kind of chilling with his coffee. He says, you've been confessing the same uh, past deeds to me for years, Carl. I forgave you. Let's move on. Wait, you're not mad at me? Just don't jack with my grace, Carl. Yeah, I, I love that. I, you just say, yes, he forgives you over and over again. Just receive it and move on. But at the same time, Scripture is adamant that we are saved for a reason, for a purpose. It's not like, okay, make sure you get your insurance policy set and then just keep on living the way you were. It's more than that. So in verse 8, it's the same two conversation partners as God and David, but it's now reversed. And God begins to speak in verse 8. And, and he says this, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Don't be as the horse or the mule. And he goes on to explain that. Basically, don't be stubborn. Don't keep fighting against me. I don't want to put a bit in your mouth and reins on you. I will forgive you. But I want to impart new life to you. Scripture says, confess and he will forgive you. But he will also guide us, that eye upon us and lead us to new life. And here's the gospel, right? We're created in the image of God to to reveal his glory to all creation. And Ephesians tells us, That because of our rebellion, Ephesians 2 says, we were dead in our transgressions. Jews, Gentiles, it says, we were by nature children of wrath. That's not cool. But then, but God, because of his great love which with he loved us, he made us alive together in Christ. And what did he do? He seated us with Christ above all the heavenly realms. That would be great right there. But then he says more than that. I I didn't just declare you dead in your transgressions. And I didn't just declare you alive in Christ. But I want to talk to you about how I created you and recreation. And he says, um, he, he talks about us being his workmanship. And how he created us for good works. That word creation there, the same one from Genesis. It talks about how he created the world. I I created you. I'm making you new for these good works that I prepared beforehand that you would walk in them. Created for new life. Abundant life. We're created for the God in us overflowing and blessing other people life. And David is saying, from his experience looking back, we can't be fully alive until we admit that we are stuck in some ways that still lead to death. And the call is really good news. Let us be free. Let us trust that through Jesus when we confess our sin and ask for the power uh, to live a new life, He is faithful. And that's why David ends this psalm with these words. Be glad and rejoice. Um, be glad in the Lord and rejoice, 
you declared righteous by God ones, and shout for joy all you who are honest with God about what is really going on in your heart. I normally would just close in prayer, but we have our healing prayer service this evening. And so what I want to do 